All right, glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. I am so thankful that you've all come and to honor the Blessed Mother and in that great Matins in Ockethus prayer. You know, it, it's really, it takes everything to worship, doesn't it? I'm exhausted, and I just got to stand there and be a sacristan. But uh, it was beautiful to hear the sublime theology of that we would pray and what we believe and profess. So you could take that home with you, and you've got your faith. What do we believe about the Mother of God? And there it is. It's all in a nice little stapled uh, binding there. As I did a very basic introduction, I would like to do a little better introduction. Today, we're blessed to have the very Reverend Michael O'Loughlin. He's the pastor of Proto-Cathedral, St. Mary's in Sherman Oaks. He was in Denver for a long time, and then he moved to Sherman Oaks, and he's been there, how long now, Mike? Two and a half years, and he's already got an outreach, and they're getting ready to do some big stuff in their outreach as well. So great things are happening there. Well, he's Ryan. So, Father Michael is uh, involved in the vocation office. He and I have worked together for many years for the vocations office. He's involved with the, um, he was involved with the Youth Commission. Now he's involved with the Religious Education Evangelization Commission. He's involved in a number of other committees for the bishop. And he's also had, a while he was in Denver, a famous podcast with a priest in the Diocese of Denver. And since he moved to... Sherman Oaks, he now has a podcast with Mother Natalia of Bridegroom Monastery entitled, What God Is Not. So if you all remember your apathetic theology, that's where he got the title, What God Is Not. And it sounds like he's about to perhaps start another podcast in addition to that. So we're blessed to have Father Michael here. After he's done with us tomorrow, he's going back to Pittsburgh to give a talk at Franciscan University to a group there. So he's bouncing around a number of things, and so we're blessed to have him with us today. So without further ado, I give you Father Michael. Glory to Jesus Christ. Please stand and let's pray for me. We'll pray the Heavenly King. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, Everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O gracious one. All right. Glory to Jesus Christ. We are very blessed at my parish in Los Angeles um, to have the moral theologian from the Roman Catholic Seminary as a parishioner of mine. So it's, I, I can balance all my moral theology questions off her, and I'm also throwing at her all of these Byzantine things to read, and she's, she's just eating them up. And it, it's great to have. She's a 30-something theological prodigy. She's great. And she brings a bunch of Roman Catholic seminarians down from the seminary, which is in Camarillo, down to the parish in Los Angeles. So we get caught up in a lot of discussions that, that are more oriented towards the Roman Catholic Church, and they're kind of seeking the wisdom of the East to speak in the issues that are going on in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And one of the big issues, and this has been a, an issue for a while in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, is, um, of course, standing and kneeling to receive the Eucharist or in the consecration, etc. So do we stand or do we kneel? And the seminarians get very caught up in this. It's obviously an issue that, that, is, that is, have been an issue for a long time. Of course, we know that the Council of Nicaea forbade kneeling on Sundays. Um, but then the, uh, the Roman Catholic, over the, over the centuries, the, the meaning of kneeling changed, as it didn't in the Byzantine church. So that's why we still stand to receive and stand during the anaphora, etc. But, but one of these debates got very heated among seminarians and... Libby, this moral theologian, um, said very beautifully, one of the seminarians was, was really arguing for kneeling. You know, we, we need to kneel to receive the Eucharist. We need to kneel to receive the Eucharist. And of course, coming from a very Western perspective, and, and, um, and Libby said, is kneeling really worthy of the Eucharist? You know, he was saying only kneeling is worthy. Is, is kneeling really worthy? Is it? No, 
what is worthy of receiving the Eucharist? What's the proper posture to receive the Eucharist? There is no posture that's worthy. Nothing. Nothing is. There's nothing that will make us worthy to receive the body and blood of Christ. So, as Libby explained, what we do is we listen to the guidance of the church. The church, which is the body of Christ, gives us guidance. So when, in the Roman Catholic Church, the church tells us, kneel, during the consecration, we say, amen. I will do that. When the East says, don't kneel during the consecration, but rather stand because the dignity of what you're receiving, we're no longer in penance, we say, okay, I will do that. And so the tension in the East and the West is that we are somehow pretending that, that, that one is more objectively worthy than the other. But we need the guidance of the church because kneeling is not worthy of the Eucharist and standing is not worthy of the Eucharist. We, we have become obedient to what the church says and guided by her in these ways. Now, of course, the church is made up of human beings who often get these things wrong and we're such sinners and hence the debate, of course. But, but I think it's important that, that we understand when we get very high on our horses about what the proper way of thinking or the proper way of posture is, whatever that is, we need to be very careful that we sound, that we don't sound objective because it's not true. There's nothing that is worthy, and I'll get to that in a moment. So we need to understand, well, what is an offering? Do you know what the word anaphora means? How would you trans translate that? So you know, you know the couple of times in the gospel when uh, we hear the Aramaic and even the, the Greek gospel writers did not translate something from the Aramaic? Think of Talitha Ku'um, right? What does that mean? Little girl, arise. Why didn't he just say little girl, arise? Why didn't the Greek translators just say little girl, arise in Greek? Why don't our English translators just say little girl, arise? They keep it in the Aramaic. This is the words of Christ. There's something very, very important about that. What about when Jesus puts his fingers in the, in the man's ears who is deaf? Ephrata. Same thing. Be opened. Be opened. There are some words that we don't translate. Even the gospel writers, of the, of the, even the, the apostles who wrote the gospels do not translate those words. There's something special about those words, and we can't quite explain it. We have two words in our modern translation of our divine liturgy. What are those two words that we don't translate? I just said one of them. Anaphora. The other one is? Well, it's really the good in the scriptures. What about in our liturgy? Theotokos, right. There's something about mother of God or God bearer that just doesn't do the mother of God justice. There's something about anaphora that does not do offering or consecration justice. We used to translate anaphora as offering, but there just was something lacking there. They said, what about consecration? Well, that's lacking too. So we kept it anaphora. The translator said there's something, there's something deeper more moving here. And so the point I want to get at here is that what makes us worthy to receive the resurrection? We're here in the great fast. What makes us worthy to celebrate and to receive the resurrection of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ? If we have an answer to that, we're wrong. Just like kneeling, just like translating, if we have an answer to that, we're wrong. This is why Mother Natalia and I call our podcast What God Is Not. It's a very humbling thing. We Christians are given the ability to be very eloquent about what God is not, invisible and conceivable and comprehensible. We're rarely given the grace by God to say what he is because everything falls short of the reality. We try to say what God is. We try to say what is worthy of God. What, can we, what offering is worthy of God? And so this is one of my favorite parts of the divine liturgy. Right? The deacon comes out. If we have a deacon, I don't have a deacon either. Right? The deacon comes out. Or if there's no deacon, the priest says, let us stand aright, let us stand in awe, let us be attentive to offer the whole, holy anaphora in peace. This is almost to misuse the term a magic word. There's something like taitha ka'um, anaphrata, in the word anaphora that sparks something in us. Now you ask a little child, okay, we're about to begin the anaphora, we just announced it. What have we been asking for before this? Multiple times, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. In peace, let us pray to the Lord, for peace from on high, for the salvation of our souls, for peace in the whole world. We've been asking for mercy and peace over and over and over again. 
Then all of a sudden, the deacon announces, let us stand aright, let us stand in awe, let us be attentive to offer the holy anaphora in peace. And what do we respond? I'll do it again. Let us stand aright, let us stand in awe, let us be attentive to offer the holy anaphora in peace. Mercy, peace, a sacrifice of praise. Raise your hand if you're a grammar Nazi. All right. That's not a full sentence, is it? The only time in the whole divine liturgy there's no full sentence. It's just words. It's just words. Mercy, peace, a sacrifice of praise. And there's a reason for that. At this time of the anaphora, we just heard the word anaphora. We've been asking for mercy and peace over and over and over again throughout the divine liturgy. And all of a sudden, the deacon announces we're about to begin the anaphora, the offering, the consecration. We're about to welcome Christ, welcome the Holy Spirit who is going to take this bread and wine and make it into the body and blood of Christ. And that is mercy. That is peace. So what we're saying and just crying out mercy, peace, we're saying this sacrifice of praise is mercy. This sacrifice of praise is peace. But we're very ineloquent. Can you think of another time when you got so excited about something that you were very ineloquent? You couldn't pull together a complete sentence even if you wanted to. The scripture talks of the groanings that we have as Christians. The Holy Spirit translates to God, turns our groanings into worthy prayer, and worthy sacrifice. The example I have is, is middle school. The girl above me I had a huge crush on. We have lockers, right? Lower lockers, upper lockers. And the girl above me I had a, a total crush on. And so my friend comes over and he knows this and he's mad at me. So he tells her. This is like ultimate betrayal, right? I was working on something, bud. <laughs> I was working on this. And he comes up and she looks at me and she says, you know, he says, oh, this is, Mike, Michael really likes you. She looks at me and she goes, do you? I just said, um, pretty, uh, funny, smart, hang out all day, maybe rest of life, I don't know, right? Like, the, the ineloquence when I was caught off guard is like, I'm excited, almost too excited to speak in, in complete sentences, a little bit intimidated, a little bit nervous. And that's what this part of the divine liturgy is. We're just kind of yelling words. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for peace. It's exactly what I've been asking for, and I'm about to experience it. The reality of God is that he's going to give us exactly what we need because he created us. He knows in the depths of our heart, what we want. He knows what we need and what we want most. But we're ineloquent about that. So therefore, God also gives us the questions to ask. He also says, I'm going to give you what you need, namely myself, union with me, theos is heaven, and now I'm also going to teach you how to ask for that. Because left on our own, what do we ask for? Usually things that are very selfish. I look back on all those times I prayed that God would make a girl attracted to me. So much of my life. You, you'd never know it now, but I, was, I, was, I really struggled being alone without a girlfriend for a long, long time. And there are those of us like that. We, just, we don't feel ourselves unless we're somehow in a relationship. We have trouble focusing on school, trouble focusing on life, right? This is not always healthy. Sometimes it can be good, but it's not always healthy. And then God called me to celibacy. <laughs> and he gave me physical touch as my love language. Like, Come on, Lord. A lot of joy, and it's all very good. And our Lord guided me in all that. He was, of course, preparing me for that all along the way. But God gives us the answer. When God comes to us at the beginning of the great fast, and he says to us, what do you want of me? Well, why, why is it one of the Ten Commandments that you should not take the Lord's name in vain? What does that mean? To take the Lord's name in vain. I actually really like that translation. We often think it just means... I, don't use Jesus' name as a cuss word. But that's not the deeper meaning. It's actually much worse than that. <laughs> taking his name in vain, cursing is absolutely taking his name in vain. But so is saying, God bless you if I don't mean it. That's a bad habit of mine. Right? It's also just saying his name without understanding its power. Because the moment we say the name Jesus or God, what does he do? Yes? What do you want? What do you need? The name of Jesus is so incredibly powerful. 
It's like one of those words that Jesus comes and encounters us. Yes, what do you need? I'll give you anything. And we're on with our day, not realizing how attentive he is to us. So if you catch yourself using the Lord's name in vain, cursing or just otherwise, saying it without meaning, saying it without intention, saying it without thinking about it, let that inspire you to prayer. It's no longer in vain if you turned that moment, that lack of intention, saying it, into prayer. What if you hear your coworker or your fellow student say it in vain? Turn it into a prayer. You just may be saving them from sin. <laughs> right? Our Lord is there present. You know, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, sinner. You know, whatever you may want to do. There's something about this. There's such a power in the name of Jesus. He gives us exactly what we need. And if we, the beginning of the fast, Jesus comes to us and says, what do you need? What do you need? This is a time of great solemnity. This is a time of preparation. What do you need? What is our answer? I need you to die is the proper answer. I need you to die. I need you to suffer immensely, be mocked, scourged, walk the way of the passion. I need you to give everything, your complete self, to me and to all other sinners. Now, were you able to say that day one of the great fast? I wasn't. I never am. Every year. I'm not quite ready. I think I can actually do this life pretty well without him dying. <laughs> I think I'm doing okay. So when Jesus says, what do you need at the beginning of the great fast? I go, oh, I'm okay. Like, don't bother yourself with me. I'm pretty happy. Things are going pretty well. And Jesus goes, wrong answer, bud. Do you know how long the original great fast was in the early, early church? Little over a week. Little over a week. And all of a sudden, namely Lazarus Saturday through Easter Sunday, all of a sudden there came these converts, and they wanted to be Christian too. They realize, how long does it take to train a convert? How does it, long to, it take as long to teach someone how to live the Christian life rather than the pagan life? Because remember, that's what the catechumenate is. The catechumenate, namely learning how to be Christian, is only about how to live as a Christian. We live in a weird culture. We're, we're kind of transitioning out of this, but in our American culture, most people are trained in a Christian concept, in a Christian world, a Christian foundation. We don't understand how different the pagan world was. We don't understand that you would walk down the street and it was normal and even good in that culture to leave a baby to be exposed and die. If you couldn't take care of the baby, babies were burdens. When Jesus says you must become like a little child, what is one of those meanings of that? It doesn't mean become cute and simple. That's one of the meanings. The deeper meaning is become annoying. Become annoying. Jesus, 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 right? Little children can't help around the home. They're just kind of burdens. And they're kind of annoying. And Jesus says, be like that. Never let me rest. Jesus says, if I'm in the bathroom, stick your hand under there. Mom, 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 right? All those things about being a kid, that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants to be incredibly, call upon him for everything. Never let him have any peace. Just be there in his face, grabbing it and turning it towards us, towards us at all times, right? All these things little kids do. I love this church. I just, we just, we're about to buy a church in Santa Paula, and it's about this size. The, the, the ceiling's about this low, and I'm looking at this going, ah, yes, this is what I want. One thing I love about this church, especially that I'm going to utilize, is your iconostas. You know, kind of you have all these, these grape vines, all these flowers. If you go to our seminary in Pittsburgh, it's similar. But our seminary in Pittsburgh also has these pillars with like palm tree fronds in the front. And you walk around, there's, there's like images of plants everywhere. This comes from synagogues. Synagogues only have, have natural things around the outside, so do mosques. You know, we have icons because we believe that since God became man, which of course neither Muslims or Jews do, since God became man, we can use icons. I'll get to that more in a second. But the more garden-looking our churches are, the more we realize that this is like the Garden of Eden. That's what the church is supposed to be. 
The church is supposed to be leaving the church and coming into the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden, we just kind of wander around. So the kids have it right, right? The kids that just wander around during the divine liturgy, kind of walk up to random things, look around. They're kind of just enjoying the space. What do kids do without pews? Thank you for your example. Without pews, what do kids do? If the priest turns around to give a blessing, where are they? They're kind of moving towards the front. When the priest goes back to pray, they kind of move towards the back, kind of naturally. When the priest comes out to do the gospel reading of the deacon, comes out to the gospel reading, what do they do? They kind of come to the front, especially if they know they're going to get to kiss the gospel book when you're done. You know? What about for the consecration? It's oftentimes you feel notice, children will kind of calm down, not always, kind of calm down for the consecration. There's something deeply spiritual there that they're picking up on. They'll tend to kind of move towards the front. In Denver, we had a Montessori teacher. We actually opened a Montessori school because she was so good. We had a Montessori teacher, and she would, she would put, we'd put the rug up in the front, and she would sit there with the kids, and she would guide them through the whole divine liturgy. And she'd say, if you want to stay with me, you need to stay on this rug. You can stand or sit, no laying down. You're going to be standing up during the gospel, during the consecration. Right? And the kids so naturally began this, this ebb and this flow, this breathing in and breathing out of the divine liturgy. They began to understand the divine liturgy better than their parents did. And you can see the parents going like, how is my kid so well behaved? That's because they're away from you. <laughs> you know, someone else is watching them. We're always not the best disciplines of our kids. But this Montessori teacher who gave them real structures, real boundaries, right? Now you need to pay attention. Now be a kid. Be a kid. Wander around. Sing whatever you want, right? Enjoy this, the Garden of Eden. And that's what this is supposed to be. So enjoy the, the, the plants and the flowers. You know, I love how I can say, like, you know, Pantelaimon's there. Mary Help of Mothers is there. Suchu is there. You, know, you, you walk into the church, you kind of know where to go, as if it's the Garden of Eden, you're kind of enjoying it. Because children kind of know this. They're kind of in the Garden of Eden all the time, aren't they? What did God give Adam and Eve? He gave them the fruit of every tree. Every tree. All of this is yours. I made you hungry. I created you hungry. Eat everything you want, every tree. And they were walking around naked without shame. What do kids do at home? They run around naked eating everything. Right? God only knows how old that Cheeto is, but okay, they found it, dug it up under the, under the sofa. There they are, the naked baby time, right, running around the house. They want to show you when you come over to visit everything. This is my room. This is my house. This is where we play. This is where we eat. Right? There's a certain childlikeness. We must become like these little children in that way too. But constantly wanting mom and dad's attention, this is what we're called to be. So God wants to give us this. This is paradise. This is the resurrection. But in order to do that, he needs to teach us what we need to ask for in order for, to give us the right things. I have a beautiful spiritual daughter who's getting married, and I've walked with her for a long time. She's getting married in, in two months. And I've walked through all the tensions of single life as she was getting older and, and, and worrying about God's vocation for her, all these things. And she's so incredibly prayerful. When you have a young person who, who is married later, they often, thank God, get very used to praying alone. And they get oftentimes used to a very contemplative prayer life. And of course, all that changes when you get married. <laughs> and it changes further when you have children. So she says to me, she says, I'm two weeks, two months away from my wedding, and I'm getting all caught up in the practical things. I'm worrying about, you know, what goes on the table. I'm going about whose planes, you know, whose planes are coming in, who hasn't yet bought a ticket. I'm worrying about all these things. She says, what should I be worrying about? What should I be doing two months out? And I didn't have an answer for her. I was like, well, you're, you're more prayerful than I am, really. So I don't, you, you, you give me the answer about what the, what the right thing is to do with this time. And so in our conversations together, I said, well, wait, wait a minute. We're, we're in the great fast right now. And the great fast, as I'm explaining now, the great fast is the perfect preparation. The great fast is what we need because at the beginning of the great fast, when Jesus says, what do you need? I'm like, I'm okay. But after meditating upon my own sin for a while and trying to fix myself for a while in the great fast, I realized real quick that I need a savior. And I realized real quick that that savior is someone who has to die for me, give everything for me, complete an utter self-gift. So then in our discussions together, we said, well, you know what? What if this next two months is kind of like a fasting period? We have these four fasts throughout the year. 
and we prepare our hearts and so Jesus doesn't trust us to appreciate or receive from the feasts what we're going to. Jesus doesn't trust us to say, you're going to celebrate the birth of the Son of God. He doesn't trust us to appreciate that enough for what it is. So he says, I'm going to give you 40 days of preparation. 40 days so your heart is ready to receive that what it is and appreciate it and receive it in its fullness. So as we were talking, we said, let's make these next two months kind of a time of, of fasting preparation for your wedding. God wants to give you the holy mystery of crowning. He wants to give you the sacrament of marriage. So let's spend these next two months with you praying, fasting, giving alms. Don't do it during Bright Week, but you know, all the rest. Pray, fast, give alms in preparation for what you're about to receive. It's a really good witness to how the way that we understand feasts. And so she's doing that. It's beautiful. She's pretty much, as she phrases it, she's creating a, a there was that old hymn we learned as kids when I was Roman Catholic, the, the God-shaped hole in my heart. You guys remember that? There's a God-shaped hole in my heart. In other words, I'm lacking something in my heart, and it's, it's God-shaped. So God fills that up. Like, she's lacking a, a marriage-shaped hole in her heart. This is what she wants. This is what God's trying to give her. So she needs to spend the next two months emptying that out. And that's exactly what the two months will be for her, and that's exactly what this great fast is for us. Realizing the only thing that will satisfy us is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will satisfy us. Have you guys, especially women, ever read Carol Houselander's book, Read of God? I highly recommend it. Carol Houselander, Read of God. It's about the mother of God that is absolutely beautiful. And she talks about the, the three instruments or the three things that we become. God calls us to one or the other, one of these three, in order to prepare for the coming of Christ. In other words, we're preparing our heart to receive him is what we're doing. She says one of these images is a reed. And she says a reed, like and the, a reed is, is, of course, something you, is grows in the ground. And if you're trying to make a flute out of this reed, by which God can play his beautiful music. What do you do? You take this reed, you pretty violently cut it. You pretty violently poke holes in it. You pretty violently hollow it out. But once these violences are done to this reed, it becomes worthy of making beautiful music. And so she says, that's what we are. Some of us are called to be this reed of God, to be the way that, that God plays his beautiful music. The prophets, the apostles, the, the martyrs are all in our hymnography called the reed of God, especially the apostles, right? The way that God proclaims his music to the world is through these reeds. But it takes this preparation. The preparation is similar. She says some of us are called to be like nests. Notice all these things are hollow. <laughs> all these things are empty, ready to receive something from God. She says some of us become like nests where the birds collect things from all over the place, all over the world, these different experiences, these different ways of living. Usually that involves like a conversion. All these things that God has done kind of without us even knowing it to prepare. Then the mother bird comes and sits in that and packs it down and makes it hollow, makes it empty, ready to receive life. Sometimes we're like a flute that began as a reed. Sometimes we're a nest that began as, as kind of scattered pieces of, of tree and bush and debris. And the third way is a chalice. Something begins as a, as a simple piece of metal that has it hammered and formed or prepared to hold the body of Christ. So this is what the great fast is. This is what my friend's time, my spiritual daughter's time of preparation for marriage is. It's, it's a hollowing out so that we say, okay, now, Lord, I feel that I'm lacking something. I actually feel that I'm lacking something. This is why the church even gives us the guidance. We're, we're kind of weak nowadays. But in the early church, if you go to Christ the bridegroom monastery, they still do it. If they have presanctified in the evening, they don't eat anything before that. That's why traditionally, before we receive the Eucharist at all, we haven't eaten anything that day. I would encourage you to try that if you can, or work towards it even better. We need to be humble enough to say it's not just a, a powering through, right? The church gives us 70 to 80 years of life to prepare ourselves to do these things. But I can tell you the difference for the, the couple times I've been able to pull it off. When you walk in the church actually hungry, like hungry, hungry, and you're, you're waiting for that Eucharist, because that Eucharist, that little bit 
of Jesus in the form of bread is going to satisfy your hunger. Then you go to the agape meal afterwards, that is the real celebration. But you walk in truly hungry, your body pines for something. Your body pines for sleep, your body pines for food, whatever this may be. This is where prayer, fasting, and almsgiving came from. By the way, who was being prepared, to get back to what I said in the beginning, who was being prepared for the resurrection the most? Catechumens. Those who were learning the ways, the way to live their Christianity. Catechumens were learning, and that's where we got the 40 days from. Because the church decided, okay, we're going to give the catechumens, instead of just over a week, we're going to give them 40 days. It symbolizes fullness. It was a time of preparation for Jesus and Moses. And, and, and all the Moses going up the mountain, Moses 40 years in the desert. The, time, the number 40 means preparation. Jesus fasted for 40 days. Well, let's give the catechumens 40 days. And then also 40 days plus 10 more, 50, afterwards to learn the mystagogy. So they learned how to behave as Christians before they got baptized. Afterwards, they learned what it meant to be baptized. They'd already received the gift. Now they carry it out. So what we said was, this 40 days is so beneficial for catechumens, I want that same thing too. <laughs> Let's make it for everybody. And so the great fast was extended another 40 days after Great and Holy Week, in order to get the same thing the catechumens were getting. Namely, they're being prepared to receive baptism, the fullness of the experience of the resurrection. I also want to receive the fullness of the resurrection, so I'm going to add 40 days to my own preparation. And I'm going to listen to the guidance of the church when it comes to those 40 days. I'm about to go through the different Sundays and the weeks of the great fast to kind of show you the ways that God uses for catechumens and for us to prepare our hearts to receive the holy resurrection. And I, I love this, this gospel I'm about to read to you because it shows that, that it's, it's very like Peter, for example. I love Peter, one of my favorite saints, because he's a total mess. He really is. I like, but but he, he, he's a mess who's not afraid to say something. You know, it, it's the wisdom of the fathers. I was just reading one of, the, one of the books that Father Michael has back there about the wisdom of the desert fathers, too. And they always say, you know, just, just be quiet. You know, don't say so much. Those of us that talk too much, right, it, it, it puts us in so much danger of, of sin, of gossip, of pride. There's such a, a virtue, especially for those of us that struggle with talking too much, to force ourselves to just be quiet sometimes. You know, just listen. Just listen. Uh, a virtue that's greatly lacking. The, the uh, podcast that Father Michael mentioned that I may be starting, I'm going to call Listening in Tongues, so don't steal that. Right? It's called Listening in Tongues. Instead of Speaking in Tongues, I'm just going to invite all of my crazy new secular friends in Los Angeles to come on my podcast and we're, going to, I'm going to, we're each going to give each other something to read, write, or listen to beforehand. Then we'll go on and we'll talk for an hour. Then at the end, we'll have a challenge for each other. So I challenge you to do this based upon our conversation, and they challenge me to do this based upon our conversation. I think it's going to be an opportunity to most, mostly to share with other Catholics like what we're dealing with. These are the people we're trying to evangelize. Here's their fears. Here's their joys. Here's everything they love. Here's everything they fear and then to see the Holy Spirit working in that way. But, again, we have to trust God that he's preparing us, preparing us to do what we need in order to receive what he wants to give us. So here's a scripture verse. It's the apostles ask Jesus a question, and it's not the right question. In other words, Jesus is actually very gently forming them. Not only am I going to tell you the answer, I'm also going to tell you the question to get to that answer. This is Mark 9, verse 9 through 12. As they were coming down the mountain in a transfiguration, Jesus ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So that's their question. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, they just saw him transfigured on the, on the Mount of Tabor. They got really excited. 
because they saw with their eyes or their senses for the first time that this may be God. Right? This man who we've been traveling with for three years, this may be the one. We just saw his divinity shining through his humanity. And so their minds immediately went to, okay, what's supposed to happen first? What else is supposed to happen? They just saw Moses and Elijah. Those two guys were supposed to come first. Right? The Old Testament says a prophet like Moses is going to come and Elijah himself is going to come to prepare the way. So they're asking him now, why does it say Elijah must come first? Was that it? Was that the Elijah we're waiting for? Now are you the Messiah? They ask, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, I think this is kind of to humor them, Elijah is indeed coming, coming to restore all things. But, this is what you should have asked, <laughs> how then is it written that the Son of Man, that he is going to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? In other words, they're looking for the glow-in-the-dark, transfigured Jesus, right? That's what they're interested in. They're interested in getting rid of these evil Romans who have conquered their town and are taxing them in the land God gave them, kicked out all their prophets. That's what they want. They want Elijah to come first and for Jesus to be this, this, this political king and Messiah. And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. How is it then written about the Son of Man that he has to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? That's what you should be ready for, not the other. By the way, spoiler alert, they were not ready. All but John fled. <laughs> they were not ready. Any questions about that before I go on? I, I'm going to now jump into the, into the various weeks that we've already experienced. Questions, concerns, thoughts, squeals of delight, cries of heresy? All right. All right, the very first Sunday, a little Byzantine trivia now, the very first Sunday of the Great Fast, the Sunday of the triumph of orthodoxy. What year, anybody know, or the time when this became a feast in our church, that the first Sunday was called the triumph of orthodoxy? That's a really good answer, but it's not true. Why, why is that a good answer? Because of the Seventh Ecumenical Council that happened right about that time. John Damascene, right back there, right? The Muslims had come through. The Muslims had convinced many, if not all, if not all bishops, not all bishops, almost all bishops, that we could not have images. These were idols, right? Muslims, as you know, I hope, because of the Muhammad discussion, you cannot portray in a physical way, Allah especially, or the prophets. They were too other, they were too holy, too big. You cannot portray them in something like this. And they began to convince the Christians, even the Christian bishops, that this was true. And we, as well, should not portray God or our saints in any physical form. So a council was called, and of course the hero of this council was the monks. They were the ones who had continued praying, they had icons, they were the iconographers, and they came out and they were horrified that many bishops were saying we should not have icons. This was pervasive, pervasive. If you ever get a chance, go to Cappadocia. Father Jack Custer and I went a few years ago in Turkey. And you go and, and they're, they're going to pull, you can see that they, they in these old, old monastic um, cells and churches, even some of those, the iconoclasm came through. And there's these old, very simple icons that they've kind of scraped away to reveal that in the first centuries of the church, the monks had these, these beautiful but very simple icons. And then you see that they painted over that with just symbols of flowers and more garden imagery because they were iconoclasts. And then you see, after the Seventh-day Ecumenical Council, they painted over that and put back up icons again. Holy Spirit was at work in the Seventh-day Ecumenical Council. Okay, we can have icons. Your second answer was right. About a hundred years later, finally, people were listening. So all those who were at the Seventh-day Ecumenical Council who had this great victory and said the Holy Spirit wants us to have icons, it took a hundred years until most people believed that to be true. The triumph of orthodoxy, that's when this came into being. And that's when we now, from that time on, we celebrate always the first sight of the great fast, the triumph of orthodoxy. But do you know what the feast was before that? That was... 800 years after Christ. Before that, we commemorated the bishop, I'm sorry, the prophets. It was the Sunday of the prophets. And so we were, again, like we always are, back in the Old Testament. 
they were coming out of the prophets. The gospel is Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel. That's the gospel we always hear, the call of Philip and Nathaniel. Now, I want you to put yourself in the mind of the catechumens. Remember, all of these gospels, all this 40 days was originally for the catechumens. So those who are preparing, in other words, to receive baptism. They're being trained. What are all the gospels after Pascha? They're for the neophytes. They're all about water. <laughs> Almost all of them are about water because they've been newly baptized. So beforehand, I'm going to walk you through and say, here's what the catechumens heard. And we, Christians, kind of got jealous and said, I want that to be for me too. So there's something inspirational to prepare us to have our baptism, in a sense, re-engaged in the resurrection of Christ. So in the call of Philip and Nathaniel, you know the story. This is um, Mother Natalia, who I have the podcast with, is, is one of my closest friends. We have been for about 10 years now. Um, she came to my parish kind of on a whim. I say it was a date with a guy. She denies that. But she came with a guy that was a parishioner of ours. And, uh, and anyway, I, I was able to become her spiritual father and, and walked her through um, all of her discernment. I still call her the most boy-crazy nun I've ever known. Yeah, she, she, she's, she's very real. She's dedicated herself completely to the monastic life in a very, very intense way. Um, but she's still very, very down-to-earth and very, very normal. Thank God. I, I, I only tell the story because... Um, when Philip calls Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, you know, come and see, and Philip, I'm sorry, Nathan, Philip says, come and see. And Nathaniel's a little bit, you know, denying, you know, what good can come from Nazareth, right? The one, and this is, we hear this because um, Philip says, the one who the, the fathers of the prophets spoke of, right? The one we've been waiting for, the one the prophets spoke of. This is one of the reasons why um, Fathers and scholars have said, what does it mean that Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree? What does that mean? How is that intense? Nathaniel cries out right after that and, and, and acknowledges him as the Messiah, the Son of God. What does it mean? What does it mean I saw you under the fig tree? There's, of course, various meanings for this. We never want to be arrogant enough to think that, that the one we've heard or learned is the only one. But one of the reasons is, is that, of course, fig trees have big, big leaves. Why is that important? Well, that's what Adam and Eve used to cover themselves. <laughs> <laughs> right, big leaves. They found the, the, the biggest leaf, and they, they used it to cover themselves. So fig trees have big leaves. Now, if you've ever seen a fig tree, you'll know that, that the figs, some of figs are on the outside, but there are also some figs that are deep inside the tree. And so you have to actually have to move these big leaves and go searching. So I saw you out of the fig tree probably meant that Nathaniel, among other things, was a searcher. He was looking for God, and he was searching the scriptures. That's why he knew nothing good could come from Nazareth. As he was a scripture scholar. He was a searcher, a seeker for Christ. And so when Jesus says, this is a true Israelite, in him there is no guile. Another translation of guile is duplicity. Duplicity, namely, you're kind of looking for two things. All of us are duplicitous. I can say that of you because you're human like me. Right? All of us, we, we come to church and we're, we're very, very holy. We want so much. And all of a sudden, we do what Paul says, and then we go back to our lives, and we do what we do not want to do. We actually do what we hate when we sin. All of us are sinners. We're all duplicitous. And God looks at Nathaniel and says, in this man, there is no duplicity. He is single-minded in his search. He is looking only for God. As soon as, soon as God reveals himself, he immediately, like I said last night, he immediately understands who this is. And in Mother Natalia, there is no duplicity. There is a little bit, but not much. And Mother Natalia was very, very good to me. She said, as she was nearing her, her the, the date in the monastery where she got her new name, her, her old name was Victoria, and she got her new name of Natalia, she said, you're never, as a celibate, you're never going to get the name a child. And I know that's very important for fathers, very important for men and people to name a child. So I'm going to, I want you to name me. Give me my new name. Submit it to Mother. So in the, in the monastery, um, the, the, the woman submits three names, and the mother usually chooses one of those. So she let me choose the three names, and then mother chose the name. So Mother Theodora and I got to choose her name, which was, which was really, really beautiful that she did that. Um, so the first Sunday, Philip and Nathaniel. Where was I? I scrolled away. Philip, and he's excited. He trusts when he goes to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel asks him, what could come from Nazareth? What is Philip's response? Does he go on a, a theological treatise? 
Does he do some kind of awkward evangelization speech, an elevator pitch, if you will? In English, we translate three words. Father Michael and I know this well in the vocations world. Come and see, exactly. He doesn't trust himself, but he certainly trusts Jesus. He says, come and see. Now, there's something about the, on the first Sunday, the catechumens are going are gonna to see that something called me here. I'm, I'm trying to, to come and see Christ. If I want to find him, I need to be a searcher. I need to, to have perseverance. Right? How many people in your parish, how many times have you had converts come here? And they're so zealous. They're like, we have new parishioners. They're going to be for, here forever. This is going to be great. The last three or four weeks, they even start tithing, right? They put their name in the roster. How when can I change rights? Oh, you need to wait a year. No, I want to do it now. Three weeks later, they're not coming. <laughs> four weeks, they're not coming. You call them up. Oh, well, it's, it's a little bit too far to drive. And we have some new issues. We have to, we have to stay closer to home, you know, right? There needs to be this perseverance. So the, the, the seeking, the moving, the digging deep, these are the best converts. These are the ones who can persevere and have patience and, and search and give it some time. I tell Roman Catholics in our literature, I said, do not, even think about, do not even think about appreciating what you've done here until you've come three times. <laughs> you have no idea until you've come three times, even to begin the beauty of what, of what we're doing here. So these seachers, these catechumens, they've come in. They've been called by someone usually. They're Philip to their Nathaniel. They are seekers. They're digging. They're, they're persevering. They're doing all these things. They go to Christ, and they cannot be duplicitous. Our scripture scholar in seminary said, just imagine in the early church, in this pagan world where, where babies were left to die. That, that, that was normal, even good. Well, if, if you can't raise this child, of course you have to let it die. Sound familiar? <laughs> we're doing it this day with abortion, right? Of course let this baby die. But the Christians, like today, were the ones rescuing those babies. We're raising them up. I'll get to Polycarp in a moment. He was an orphan. Very similar situation. But Father Jack used to say to us, my scripture scholar, he would say, he's the one I went to Turkey with as well, and he would say, okay, now imagine you, you have a 16-year-old boy, and you meet this boy, and he's, he's very zealous. I want the truth. I want beauty. I want goodness. I want to be obedient to God. I want to be holy. I want to get to heaven. And you say, okay, well then come to the church. We're meeting in this at the, catacomb, at the catacombs outside of Rome. Come, pray with us, receive the body and blood of Christ. We'll baptize you. You'll be saved. And on the way to the catacombs, they pass by three or four pagan temples, as they would have. And outside the pagan temples, there's a priest out there saying, you know, the city needs fruit, to be fruitful. You need to be fruitful. Come, sleep with this prostitute. That'll be your worship. Because as you, as, you, as you see with this prostitute, that's the worship of this pagan god. And that'll bring fruit. That'll bring peace. Imagine being a six-year-old boy and being tempted with all the things of the world and telling him that they're good. These things will make you happy. These things will even benefit us. The rest of the world, come. Imagine that six-year-old boy walking by all those pagan temples to come and stand and have a simple meal of bread and wine that we say is the body and blood of Christ and join the community and have his soul saved. All the things in this world are not new. California is not new. <laughs> right? It's been done over and over and over again. And we, we understand why our churches aren't packed and why it's so hard to get our young people to church. Same issues are there. Same issues are there. So what do we do? What do we do? I wanted to tie all of these um, themes of all these weeks, and I'll do it for every single one, the themes of these weeks and tie them into what we do afterwards. I have so many people that, that, that learn about our Byzantine faith and that a lot of Roman Catholics, especially if they're already married, say, oh, Father, I want crowns. Can I do it again? Right? That's so beautiful. I want the dance of Isaiah. I didn't get that at my wedding because I'm Roman Catholic. Can I, can I do it again? I want to receive from a spoon that's so beautiful. Right? The Byzantine church is so much more beautiful than the, than the Roman Catholic church. Like, okay, here's my litany of things I like what you guys do. <laughs> Better than us. Right? One of them is a priest. I never had my hands consecrated. I never got to take a Roman Catholic priest when they're, when they're ordained. Their hands are consecrated with oil. They take a white cloth and rub the oil off and give that to their mother. And then the mother in her casket is holding on to that. 
when she dies, they put it in her hand. So when she gets to the throne of God, she can say, look, I gave you a priest. Right? Beautiful. We don't do that. I love it. Another thing that I love about the Roman Catholic, not that I would change anything we do, of course. I just think it's good to appreciate the other lung and what they do well. The other is unleavened bread. The Roman Catholic Church changed that. They used to have leavened bread as well. They changed it to be unleavened bread. Why? Because it goes back to the Passover meal. The Byzantine use of leavened bread is more the Shabbat meal. Every single Sunday, right, they use leavened bread. But on Passover, once a year, they use unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread at Passover? Because they were in a hurry. They couldn't take the time to rise the bread. They were in a hurry. So when you receive unleavened bread, the idea is that I'm in a hurry. I need to go in haste to spread the word, to go and evangelize, to take what I've been given and go share it with the world. Right? If we receive the Eucharist and do not share it with the world, it's just like eating a bunch of bread and sweets and sitting on our couch at home. What's going to happen? We're going to get fat, gluttonous. We could become spiritually fat or gluttonous if we come and think the Eucharist is only for us, receive it, and then don't do anything about it. Not carry these graces out into the world. Everything we receive from God, we have to say, I'm going to share this. I'm giving Father Jack Custer a lot of shout-outs right now. But I said to him, he was such an inspiration to me when I was in seminary. He was just an amazing man, an amazing priest. And I said to him one time, I said, Father, you've been a great inspiration to me. I said, I want to know who your inspirations were. Like, what priests inspired you to want to become a priest. And he thought for a moment, and he said, actually, there weren't any. He says, I was inspired by the people, like the people I wanted to serve, the people, he says, and I used to imagine that I had this massive present that I was carrying around, a great gift, all, all beautifully wrapped. He said, that present was my vocation. And I was just looking for places to give it. Like, where do I give this? Where do I, he speaks 19 languages. The man is absolutely brilliant. He could have done anything with his life, anything. And he knew that. He had the confidence that we should all have, right? God has given me all these gifts. Where do I give it? So it wasn't being inspired from on high. It was being inspired by those who needed his gifts. It was a great answer, right? And this is how we should be. We should be confident. I go out and I have a ministry where I go to bars and coffee shops. I love going to bars and coffee shops. I'm an absolute extrovert, sanguine phlegmatic, and I love sitting down, and I, I will make friends in 30 seconds. I love sitting down and doing this. And one of the things I've realized is that usually the first time when they see a priest sit down next to them or they look over and they see a priest sitting next to them when they sat down, at first they get a little bit defensive. And some people just kind of ignore it. Other people will, will, will want to share with me all their issues with the church, right? just right off the bat, right off the bat. I've probably done this in two and a half years in Los Angeles. I've probably done it about 150 times, let's say. And I'll go and I'll sit down. I've had three instances where it ended badly. Three instances, 150. All the rest usually end with them buying me a beer, which is great. <laughs> Taking my card, maybe listening to my podcast having questions in their mind about something that they thought was settled. And it's absolutely incredible, right? The gifts we can give. And oftentimes, if I become friends with someone, they'll say, you know, I've, I've actually realized I'm kind of honored to have a priest as a friend. They start kind of bragging to their Catholic grandma. Grandma, you'd never know it. I have a priest as a friend. Like, you thought I went way away from the church, and I still am. I have a priest as a friend. And they actually admit like there's something, there's an honor to it. There's an honor to have a priest as a friend. And I said, if every Christian realized, like it's easy enough for me as a priest because I get to wear a collar, you know, and I get to go out there and pre be pretty obvious about it. For you lay people, it's harder. And I get that. It's harder. But if you had the confidence to walk around and say, I am an earthen vessel carrying in me the light of Christ. Like who wouldn't want to talk with you? wouldn't want to listen to everything you have to say. They may fight you at first. They may call you a bigot and whatever else nowadays people are calling you. But there's something inside of them since they were created in the image and likeness of God, there's something in them that wants to hear from you. They're a Nathaniel to your Philip. Something in their heart's going to be enlivened by the presence of you because you are baptized Catholics. You carry about, you are temples of the Holy Spirit. And they're going to see that. You may not see that, <laughs> but you are. 
and they're going to see them. There's something that isn't going to engage with them. And again, the devil's there too. The devil's going to fight everything. The devil's going to have them throw everything they can at you. But if there was one thing, one small v virtue, that I could say, Lord, give this to my spiritual children, to all my parishioners, it would be confidence. We are so lacking in confidence nowadays. True confidence. The devil's taken that and made us think it's either pride or shame. Right? There's a black and this white. Confidence means we understand. A true humility. A good definition of humility is just knowing who we really are. Our strengths and our weaknesses. Our joys and our fears. If we understood ourselves correctly, who God made us, what he made us to be, we would walk around with great confidence. Also, by the way, to be a confident person, you have to get really, really good at saying, I'm sorry. I forgot to do this last night, but I'll, I'll start. Last night when I was here, Many of you were here. I turned around afterwards and I wanted to build up your canters because they're amazing. And I said, you know, I'm jealous of your canters. Don't tell my canters back home. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. That, that, that. There's no need for me to build up somebody else to put somebody else down. That's gossip. And that's, I, I was just not thinking because I love my canters back in LA. They're actually quite good. They have, certainly have soul, which is what we need, right? I shouldn't have said that, so I apologize. It was, it was, it was a bad witness. But if we, if we have confidence, we do truly need to be really good at saying, I'm sorry. It needs to just flow from us. When we realize we've done something wrong. I know that's easy enough for me to say. It's much harder to say to your spouse, your parents, someone you're really close to. But if we have true humility, that, that will not affect our humility. It will not bring shame. It will actually bring true confidence. I'm going to continue with this. Um, we have four more minutes until we take a break. Um, do any of you have any questions before I continue with that thought? Insights? Yes? Um, no. They would have had, they would have had, right, so the, the, the veil, they would have had the, the cherubim on top of the, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there were certainly images um, we see in the Old Testament, various images, but you, you, you wouldn't want to. If you had an image of God, it would be wrong. It would be insufficient. And that, that was the, the amazing thing that God did by becoming able in the Logos, Jesus Christ, to be able to be seen and portrayed. And so it's, it's, it's really mind-blowing, something we stand in awe of to have that because I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like I, I really respect the Jews and the Muslims for kind of putting God on such a pedestal. I think one of, one of, one of the issues in, in our church today is that we've, we've become too nonchalant about God. You know? And that's actually a good thing because like I, my, 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 my brother and sister foster babies, foster kids, and there was this one little girl I heard that we were getting a, a, they were getting a foster baby. This is when I was in Denver. And this little girl... So I, I, oh, she's coming on next Wednesday. And I go, and I, we're at the outreach, and I, I see my brother pull up. At that time, I think he had five, six kids. Now they have nine. But they, they pull up in, the, in their big van, and, and I open the, siding glass, the door on the side of the van to like look in, and there's this little girl I've never seen before. <laughs> and she looks at me, and I go, oh, they must have had a foster. And she jumps in my arms. Jumps in my arms. I've like, never seen this girl in my life. And I carry her in, and then the Divine Liturgy ends, and I, I'm holding her again. Next Sunday, same thing. I open the door. She jumps into my arms, and I'm holding her again. I'm, you know, this girl, amazing little girl, you know, horrible family situation, being fostered by my brother. Third Sunday, I throw open the door, and she just looks at me, and just walks right around me. Won't even look me in the eye. I go, oh, okay. So then after liturgy's over, same thing. I go to pick her up. She lets me pick her up, but she's just kind of like, eh, whatever. I went to my sister-in-law, and I'm, as I'm walking over, there, the other priest that's at this church comes walking by, and she like pushes herself out of my arms and jumps into his. Like, never met this guy in her life. And I walk over to my sister-in-law, and I said, what was that? And she said, oh, you don't understand. This girl has never had anybody love her for more than a few weeks. So she refused, three years old, she refuses to get attached. Refused, because everybody's abandoned her, her whole life. So here she is, like, getting attached to you, and now instead of you leaving her, she's leaving you. Because it's much easier for her at three years old to do. And I thought, you know, they had her for long enough. And unfortunately, they had to give her back. They would have adopted her in an instant. But they had to give her back. And, and, and they, they begged the uncle who they had to give her to, just let her come one day a week. 
hang out with the kids. Like, like give her one example of someone who didn't abandon her. But before they had to give her back, she kind of became a brat. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> she started becoming very entitled and demanding things from them. And I said, amen, amen. The fact that you go from expecting nothing to expecting everything, that's how I want you to be, little one. You be a brat. You expect everything. You become so used to love that you just know what's going to happen, and you become entitled. Yes, be an entitled three-year-old, please. You know? there, there, there's something about if we are being rejected and pushing back that much, there's something beautiful about that. All right. Um, I'll answer your question when we get back, if that's OK. He's, he's calling time on me. I'll remember. OK. All right. Glory to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father Michael. Gosh, I want to be the dog last night. <laughs> I want to be the flute to sing God's love, and I want to be the chalice to contain our Lord within me. Uh, these images are just plain, plus many of the other things. So thank, thank you, Father. Uh, we get to have lunch. God's blessed us with food. And uh, so please come down, linger, have a nice meal. We'll come back up. At, we're scheduled at 1.30, so we have an hour. I'll try not to rush you too much. But we do have to be sensitive to the time for our online community that we have. And by the way, we have people that regularly watch from California, from uh, New Jersey, from Florida, and from North Dakota. I mean, all the time. They, they consider themselves an online parishioner. So we need to honor the time for them, too, so they can do what they need to do to get back in time. So please go down. Uh, actually, Father Michael, if you'd lead us in prayer uh, for the meal, and then when they're ready, they can just serve it.